Matthew chapter 10, first book of the New Testament, 40th book of Scripture. We start, uh, we pick it up this afternoon in verse 5. So please, we'll start there. These, because we have just had the list of the 12 that Jesus had chosen. These 12, Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper for your money belts, or in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city or town you enter, and inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there until you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. Excuse me. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words. When you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I know you have a word bespoke to each of us today. Something specifically ordained for each of us. And I pray for exactly that. God, that you would speak profoundly, personally, individually, where each of us desperately needs to hear it. God, speak fluent us today. Open our hearts and our minds to your scripture today. Open us, Lord, to you that whatever it is you wish to do will be done today. And Lord, defibrillate your church. Strike us in a manner, God, so true with your word that you would penetrate very soul and spirit. And that today we will encounter you in a way that is fresh and transforming. I pray for your word, Lord, to burst open and come alive before us. Color in the black and white, God. May we be captivated in your word in such a way, God, that not a second go beyond our attention. And Lord, that you would today revolutionize us, start the revolution in our own hearts, I pray. God, immerse me in your spirit that you would be seen and come upon me, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. And now, God, speak to each of us. Overcome us today to do your work, we pray, to make us into the masterpieces you foreordained us to be. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any... Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so or because anyone with a mic says so or without a mic. Search the scriptures. That's why you get that beautiful book in your laps to challenge and to hold all things accountable. Now, it is common within the Jewish world for teachers to choose their students. Now, it starts with a pool. People volunteer, if you will. They volunteer for the purpose of being available. They kind of come, if you will, into general school and they learn. They learn basic principles of Judaism, if you will. And there are different schools. There are certainly ones that are much more harsh, like Shemai, and ones that are much more tame, if you will, or much more generous, if you will, like Halal. Now, ultimately, what happens is those that would be known for their teaching, the best way to probably to put it would be things like C.S. Lewis with the Tory programs. It's, it's like there are teachers that what they do is they observe those pools of students and as they observe them, they look for the, the, the ones that are the brightest, that are the most promising, and they choose from that then their uh, students, their personal students. So there are, if you will, in a general school and then they become, if you will, then honor students or however you would, might want to put it. 
Now, now with that, with those students, though, that's one thing to go from being called and being chosen. But now it goes deeper than that because Jesus is not just making them students. They were students in verse 1. By verse 2, we read that they become apostles. And that word, apostelos, apo meaning from, stelos means to send, simply means those sent out, or if you will, ambassadors. And it is important to recognize what Jesus is doing here is very different from what Jesus tells us at the end of the book of Mark, for instance, in Mark 16, when he tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, understand here, Jesus has, first of all, we're going to find some very basic points in our text, that Jesus has a very specific audience that he's sending these guys to. And that's going to be, by the way, one of the first things we're going to learn. And as he sends them to that specific audience, that audience is going to be those that are claiming to be God's people. That's always how this thing starts. As Jesus is chosen from a large, massive people that would be called his students, if you will. We know that because when you get to the Gospel of John, it tells us when Jesus speaks of eating his flesh and drinking of his blood, that we read many walk away and no longer follow him. By the way, for what it's worth, the verse is John 6.66. It'll be an easy verse to remember. They say, this is a hard or scleros, hard teaching. Who can follow it? And they walk away. Jesus had a massive dropout of his class in John 6 over the fact that it was more than knowledge. It was, he was demanding to be in them and not just about them. Now, here, Jesus is chosen from those big pool of students, 12 specific people. And there is within the body of Christ, and I'm going to go after a whole bunch of really separatist doctrines today, uh, but, but, but understand, part of it is, is that there is within the body of Christ those that really want to emphasize being chosen. And no doubt, they were chosen. They came from a pool of available people, but they were clearly chosen. But it is important to note that Jesus said, didn't I choose you? And yet one of you is a devil. So just to say you're chosen, be a little careful because Jesus chose Judas. Here, Jesus is choosing them and they're sending them out two by two. The twelve, most of which we're quite familiar with. And it tells us here now, this is what we might call, we might begin what's called the Sermon of the Sending. But this, by the way, I mean, we could pull from this certain things, but we need to recognize what Jesus is basically doing is sending people two by two into towns Jesus himself is about to enter into. So this is very different from when he, of course, resurrects, ascends, and then says, now everyone, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we'll get to that in a moment, but please understand, we start with this. Jesus starts, interestingly enough, the Sermon of the Sending with the words, don't go. Did you notice that? An interesting place to start. It tells us again in verse 5 that the twelve Jesus sent down and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter into the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Contextually, at the end of chapter 9, Jesus looks at the massive crowd of people and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. They're scattered. They're flung. They are strewn out. If you will, they're falling apart. And he looks and he says, Man, you know, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the labors are few. That's his response to that. I mean, we think of the times where Jesus could have said something like that. But what he says, it is a group of people who are already following him. They're already sniffing around. And Jesus goes, the, the, the harvest is so ripe, but the laborers are so few. Would you guys pray with me, please, that the Lord of the harvest would send out harvesters? And, and one thing we could easily forget, or maybe we just don't know, is when you are praying, you volunteering. And as they pray, now Jesus is sending them out. They're praying, oh God, please send harvesters. And Jesus goes, now go. Now please hear me in this. The Lord has not called me to see every need. Praise God for that. The Lord has called us as the body, each to see the needs he sets before us for him to perform his magnificence in each of us. And there comes this point where somewhere in contemporary Christianity, we almost think that there's a handful of experts who do all the work and the rest of them, at best, they're kind of like the cabinet. You know, they're kind of like the shadow followers, if you will. The people who kind of come and they just want to make sure they can critique whatever and make sure that if something's being missed, they can tell them. Have you ever wondered if the Lord shows you something? Have you ever wondered why the Lord showed you that thing? I love the fact that you can say that the Lord has spoken to you. I've noticed a need. 
There's a part of my heart that is being yanked on. The strings of my heart are being pulled because of this thing. Well, clearly the Lord's showing you because he wants you to be an agent of change in that situation. Here these guys are praying. And as these guys are praying, he sends them out and he says, now look it. God has a specific audience for you. And that's clear from the text. Here he's saying, now look it, you can go to the Gentiles and you can go to the Samaritans. Now, without developing too much of who that is, in the simplest sense, that's everybody who's not clearly 100% Jewish. But understand, the Bible makes clear that they first were the ones to be reached. Now, that is in no way to abrogate or to overlook or neglect the rest of the world. As a matter of fact, God had ordained, according to the book of Isaiah, for the nation Israel to be the light to the Gentiles. That's everybody who isn't Jewish which more than likely is everyone in this room or most of everyone in this room. And he's called them to be the light so that they would call on the name of the Lord and find salvation. That was their intent. Now, now please hear me as we start this. Jesus starts by saying, look it, I have a specific group of people and I don't want you to get distracted from the place I'm calling you to. And what we're going to find is throughout Scripture, there are different people with different burdens that often find themselves in the wrong place. We can see that with Paul often. The person from the book of Acts that you find who writes, by the way, if you will, 13 of the letters in the New Testament. This is a guy who, by the way, has a broken heart for the Jewish people, but he's called to the Gentile. He would have loved this particular command. Now, there are others. And then you think, and probably one of the reasons is that the guy that's clearly called to the Jewish people was Peter. And when you look at this guy that has terminal athlete's mouth, if you will. You, know, you get the idea here that you could see Paul going, I could do that so much better. And God's like, yeah, you could think you could do it better, but I do it better than both of you. And I use people in their weakness to show my glory. Now, now in this situation, he starts to send them out and understand this is exactly what he tells us. First Peter 4, 7 tells us it's time for judgment to begin at, begin at the house of God. And understand Jesus is going to start a revival. But please hear me. You can't start a revival where there's never been a Bible. And vive means life. You can't bring life back to something that's never had life. The church are the only people that can be revived. Everybody else needs to be vived. And if God wants to start a revival, where do you think he's going to start it? He's going to start it with his people. God wants to change London, but God doesn't want to change London first by just having the laws transform and then come into a church and then find themselves in this gooey, nasty mess of what the church is today. What God wants first is for his people to turn their hearts to him. Didn't God say in Second Chronicles 7.14, where it says, If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, that I will hear from heaven, I will turn, I will forgive their sins, and I will, hear, and I will heal their land. God says it didn't say if the wicked would stop being wicked, if we could legislate people into niceness, if we could turn the unsaved people into less unsaved, if we could turn nasty people into less nasty, if we could just clean up the airwaves and make sure that everything you listen to and watch is basically accredited by a moral majority, then we'll be okay. That's not what God says. He says, if my people... The reason why a nation is in a mess is not because sinners are sinning. That shouldn't surprise us. It's in the name. The problem is, is that God's people are not willing to be God's people. That's where the problem is. And understand, the nation becomes a mess and the world becomes a mess because God's people are not available for deployment like God wants them to be. And that's where it has to start. So what God does here, and I remind you, Jesus is stepping into a world steeped in religious culture that is all about their own enterprise and not about reaching the world and, and, and helping and showing mercy and grace, but instead about making sure their empire is established and protected. And Jesus steps right in the middle of that. And he could have just set the whole thing on fire. But instead he says, go to them first. Because that's where my heart is. Let's get them going. Because if we can get them going, we've got an army. And it would be so much better for the army to happen than for an individual here and there. In Ezekiel 22, verse 30, it says, God's speaking, by the way, as he sees the lack of justice and the lack of mercy and the apathy of his own people. He says, so I sought for a man among them who would make a wall 
who would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Imagine in all of Israel, it doesn't say I couldn't find a good church. It doesn't say I couldn't find a healthy denomination. He says, I looked for every individual. I could not find one person. And all of the people who called themselves one, I could not find one person who could stand in the gap. You want to try something fun with me this week? Every time you're in public transportation and you hear someone say, mind the gap, think of this gap and pray. That place where we're like, oh God, there is a gap between a sinful world and a God who loves them. And that is the iniquity because God says in Isaiah 59, your iniquities have separated you from me. And imagine we're like, God, put me in that gap. Somebody that was willing to intercede that would say, God, please save these people and use me. Not just save these people and please raise up somebody nicer. It says in Isaiah 59, that same text, by the way, in verse 15, that the truth falls. He who departs from evil makes himself prey. Have you ever done that? You're seeking to be right, and it's amazing now. People, even people who actually call themselves Christians, are going to bag on your face because now all of a sudden, oh, you're going to be one of those holier than thou's. What are you, self righteous? It's amazing the terms that you put in your pocket in a moment like that. Oh, you're going overboard. He says, man, a person who really wants to walk away from evil, depart from it, makes themselves pray. Now, that's not pray like praying. That's like you are the thing that the lion's looking at. Then the Lord saw it and it displeased him because there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. If God were to look down at London and he were to look not just here at this church, but Christianity as a whole, would he find one person on their knees with a broken heart saying, God, save my city. Please save my city. God says, I looked here 720 years before Jesus comes. He says, I couldn't find anyone. I couldn't find one person talking to me about it. He says, you know what happened? And his own Righteousness. Well, it says, therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him. God says, if no one else is going to do it, well, then I'm going to do it. I am not going to let the world die like this without a witness. We're so steeped in apathy. And Jesus sends these people. And as he sends these people, he's like, look at the first place we're going are to my own people. People who actually call themselves mine. And I'm going to send them there. Because they're dead and they don't even know it. Please hear me. Though Jesus will later say, and of course in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world, this is where it starts. It starts here, then we go into all the world. Remember when Jesus said in Acts 1, 8, that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem first, then all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. He goes, it's going to start right at your epicenter. The second thing, by the way, it says then in verse 7, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't miss this because this becomes the point where we get our jugulars. First of all, he's sending, I can remind you, he's sending the people to those that call on his name. And he goes, and, and by the way, here's the second point. God has a specific message. It isn't as you go, defend it. As you go, answer everyone's question. As you go, make sure that you have your litany of answers for those people that are going to get nasty and try to pretzel you. Make sure you shut them down and get out your dusty books and make sure that you've got every theological argument and you work with modus poens and you work with tolens. You work with all of those sort of philosophies and all of those things. Jesus says, I have a very specific message. And it's so simple, any one of you can say it. Now, let me ask you, when he sends them out into the world, doesn't he do the same thing? So th- that point, your target audience is everyone. And as your target audience is everyone, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Not just do nice things, not just kind of do really good things and like play that really goofy Francis of Assisi statement or whatever, you know, give, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. It's necessary. Use words. The gospel is the power of salvation to anyone believe that question is, can you recite the gospel? Can you tell me what it is? Because if you can't, how do you even know you're saved? 
But if we're out to go, if we're to go out into all the world and preach the gospel, we should at least know that. And you're like, but I don't have all of the answers. You have the answer. You have the message he sent you to, 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 to say. And if that's the message he sent you to say, that's the key here. For all of the other things, and I'm not saying that being able to answer questions is bad. It's just not the answer because Jesus said, here's a specific message. Go do this to the world. And once this is done to the world, that's the point. And it even says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's what he says. <laughs> so listen, if I'm going to look at it from the Scripture's perspective... I don't even have to convince you. That's the Holy Spirit's job. My job is to make sure that I'm clear with the message. <clears throat> and if you're not sure what the gospel is, let me give you this really quick. 1 Corinthians 15. Go ahead and take a look. Go ahead and turn there, if you will. You might as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is defending the issue of the resurrection, by the way. Because there were a group of people calling themselves Christians that actually said they didn't believe in the resurrection. Paul says, do you realize how goofy you look for that? He says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you're still dead in your sins. Exactly what kind of Christian are you? You're at best a Christian zombie? So it says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered you first... Of all that which also I received, that one, Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture. Two, that he was buried. Three, that he rose again on the third day, according to Scriptures. And then it says, and then he was seen by Kephas, that's Peter, and the twelve. He was seen by over 500 people at once, of whom the greater part of the present uh, remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So here's the simplest thing. It's a four-step. One, Jesus died for your sins, according to Scripture. Two, he was buried. Three, he rose again on the third day, according to Scripture. And four, he was seen by a lot of people. Did you get that? Was that difficult? But you're like, but if I say that to someone, they're going to think I'm goofy. They probably, if you believe in Jesus, they probably already do think you're goofy. Are you aware of that yet? And then they're kind of looking at I me. Mean, let's face it. You talk to some guy that lived 3,000 miles away 2,000 years ago, and you have an intimate relationship with him, and that's not weird. And then he's going to come, and you're, you know, if you're a guy, you like, you really love him, but you're kind of not that way, and, but you really love him, and he really loves you, and one day he's going to come and suck you into the sky and take you home to be with him. That doesn't sound weird. Just because it sounds weird doesn't mean it's not true. There's a lot of things that are weird that are true. We live in, we're in Camden. We know there are a lot of things that are true that are weird. But please hear me in this. What if we took God for his word and we actually trusted him? If the gospel is the power of salvation to anyone who would believe in it, and the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, so my job is to give you the gospel, and I sat down with someone and said, can I just tell you these four very important things? Jesus Christ died for your sins according to Scripture. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to Scripture. And then he was seen by a whole lot of people. You need to accept that gift. And they could be like, well, what about the Inquisitions? What about, do you realize how great it is to say you don't know? What about that wacky priest who was doing things with children up in Ireland or something? You're like, I don't know him. What about the Pope? He doesn't invite me over for dinner. Why would I know? Why do I have to defend the Pope? What about the Inquisitions? How old do I look? Who was Cain's wife? How old do I look? What difference does it make if she's married? Why are you asking? The point is, are you going to accept this gift? Or do we not trust God's scripture? Here he has a specific message. Listen, he has a specific audience. And to the specific audience, he has a specific message. Be faithful for the specific, simple message. But here was his message to them. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does that mean? God's kingdom is within your grasp. Now, please understand what Jesus is doing. Jesus is traveling in a circuit. So let's say if he were here, the idea would be that Jesus might leave here and let's say he might head down to Croydon. 
And on, after Croydon, he might head down over to Heathrow. And then after Heathrow, he might actually head up and around. He may make his way to Bath. And after making his way to Bath, he might make his way over to Stratford-upon-Avon. And he was kind of making this tour, if you will. So what he does is he kind of looks, and he'll make his way up to Cambridge. So what does he do? He kind of looks and he says, I'm going to send you guys out. David, that would be good. I'm going to have you and why don't you buddy up with Arenas and she's your wife. You guys head over to Cambridge and prepare things. Let people know I'm coming. Let my people know I'm coming. And let's say Jesus is going to even make his way farther over. He's going to make his way to Paris. So, of course, he's going to have to take Hugo, huge O, and his wife, Deborah. And he's going to go, okay, so why don't you guys go over there and let them know that I'm, let my people know I'm coming. And so while we're at it, let's just send Juan to Bath. That would just be fun for, that would be good for Ati's sake. See, Ati's not arguing here. And let's, and now you guys go and go to my people and tell them that Jesus is coming. Do you get it? The whole point of it is, is that what Jesus was doing is he was sending people ahead of him because he's on his way. And he's going, tell my people, not the lost yet, not those that are kind of convoluted, which we might say with the Samaritan, but those that are clearly claiming to be mine, tell them I'm coming. That is the problem with the church today. Is that we forgot he's coming. And nobody's telling his people that he's coming. So what happens now is we, have, we kind of sit complacent. That's actually on. We sit complacent and we're just kind of like, oh, well, let's kind of sit and have our little kumbaya moments. And maybe we'll watch something and we'll, we'll have a couple beers and we'll be kind of cool about it. And, and in the end of it all, we'll talk about how cool Spurgeon was or something. And then in the end of it all, we have no concept that the Lord is on his way. And what happens? what happens when we don't think about that? Well, let's say it this way. To me and Lauren somehow are out dancing. To me decides she's going to pick up a career in dancing while she's at it. Lauren's pulled her in. She's a disciple of Lauren. And the two of them are on tour, and they meet the two perfect men. They are the perfect men. We're going to call it three me or two me, you know, while we're at it. And Lauren, because that could be a guy's name too for Lauren, so it's Lauren and Lauren. And these two guys are the deal. They love Jesus. They're awesome. And they're in pursuit. And they're going to prove that they love them. They're going to prove they're sacrificial. They're going to prove that they want to invest in them and treat them like ladies, like they deserve, like the princesses of the king of kings that they deserve to be. Yeah, y'all eating this, right? right? And, then, and then all of that, they, you know, and they drop the knee and they offer the rings and they're like, will you be mine? Sure. And they said, yes, yes. And they're like, isn't this cool? We get to be engaged. And, and they try to go, when's your wedding? I don't know. When's your wedding? I don't know what they didn't say. And then somewhere down the line, somebody decides they want to destroy those relationships. Now, I won't say it's anyone in this room because that would really breed some kind of bad thing. But let's just say somebody else is really nasty. And so what they want to do is they want to sow in doubt. Well, how do they do that? All they need to do is to try to get you to forget about these two amazing men. And then one of the ways to do that is to go, oh, did they really mean that you guys were going to actually get married? Or did they just give you a ring to keep you hanging on? And the sooner or later that, that they get you to stop thinking about the wedding. Because in the beginning, the moment that happens, you know, that hand becomes instantly light, right? Everywhere you go, oh, just hi, how's it going? Just thinking, right? And just, everything's just, you know, it's amazing now. It's like everyone turned into Deborah when she speaks. It's like, let me tell you why. You know, it's like the hands are out, right? And it's like, and because then the people go, well, what's wrong with you, right? And you're like, and they're thinking, you're thinking, what's wrong with you? Can't you see this shiny thing, right? And they're like, oh, you're you're engaged, yes, and you talk about the man, and you dream about the day and what it's going to be like when you say, I do, and how he's going to come riding in on his steed, and he's going to look all awesome, and all of his men, and all, how beautiful that's going to be. And somewhere down the line, people are like, no, that's not the way it is. He's allergic to horses, and he hates people, and he's, you know, he's a hermit. And that may not be, that may all be untrue. But all of a sudden, it starts shattering those thoughts when you're looking forward to that wedding. And sooner or later, if you're convinced, well, that wedding, who knows if that's even ever going to happen? Well, all of a sudden, other people start looking cuter. And the enemy's been doing that to the church since Jesus ascended. You know, let me tell you what Scripture says. And this is really hard because, please understand... There are a couple things really clear. One is Jesus makes clear in Matthew 24, 36 that nobody will know the day or hour when he comes. So if someone says they know the day or hour, 
Well, clearly, Scripture says the opposite. Who are you going to choose? And there have been people that have talked forever about how the church has failed, but I know the hour. Well, no, you don't know the hour. The Bible said don't listen to that fool. And then there were magazines that have come out about this. is Hey, let's face it. When the First World War came, wouldn't that look like the end of the world? I mean, giving a little bit of credit, that's like the whole world's at war. That's why we called it, I don't know, a world war. And, and in that, you know, there was a publication that said the end of the world, and here's the day that it's going to come. And then the best part about it, of course, you're probably aware Jesus didn't show up. That, that when they did, they had to, well, how do you keep your publications after? They said, well, he did, but we weren't ready, so we went into the inner room which was so perfect because Jesus says in Matthew 24, if they say there he is in the inner room, don't believe him. If they'd actually said he went to McDonald's, it would have been harder to disprove it from Scripture. But because it said inner room, that's exactly, God's like, hello, just read my word. It's pretty simple. So I don't know. But he talks about things that we can see that will be signs of the times. And do you realize Of the things in which he speaks of that are signs of the time, we are the first generation in history where every single prophecy about Scripture can literally come to pass. Hey, when I started pastoring, that was 26 years ago. Some of you weren't even born. Some of you, some of you were actually, yes, you were very born. But, But I remember telling people about things like cashless societies and getting chips in your hands or your head. And we were, and we, you know, it's people are like, oh, you bunch of lunatics. You're talking about the end of the world and scientists are so much smarter. Now the scientists are saying it's the end of the world and we're the ones calling them dumb. We should have said it's about time you caught up with us. In Sweden right now, they are having RF chips in guys' hands that have all of their information, including all of their bank data, and they wave it to open and close specific doors that have limited access. That's happening already. I remember when Digital Angel was pumping those cute little pieces of rice, if you will, those RF chips into dogs. We, Of course, we microchip our animals so we know where little Fluffy is when he gets away. And those things, I mean, the idea that, I mean, think about the last time you whipped out cash to pay something. Now, for some of you, maybe that was this morning. Not me. It's the drastic plastic most of the places I go. And I think about how it is, how weird that is. And now, of course, there's chips in them, right? So we can do contactless, right? Can you imagine how weird that is? Imagine explaining it to somebody when they were inventing checks. Some of you, do you know what those are? That's when we actually had to write something back when we actually wrote before we did it all. I mean, <laughs> let me tell you what. All right. Tell me another story, Grandpa. Right? And you're writing these checks, and you have to tear it off, and you're like, this really means something. Before that, there was a thing called the Federal Reserve in America, which means the federal right reserves the right to pretend this is worth something. It's just a picture on a piece of paper. Before that, like we had here, that all of the money was actually supposed to be supported by the amount of money we actually had in reserves. And then what we did is we were like, well, we need more money. Let's just print more. <laughs> And that puts us in our trouble. Now, please hear me in that. The idea that the Antichrist could set himself up for the entire world to see at one point and declare himself king means that the entire world has to be able to see something simultaneously. We've tried to help God out with his prophecies by saying things like, well, that's newspapers. How about actually everyone will be able to see? The problem is 50 years ago, that would have sounded crazy. Today, that doesn't sound crazy at all. I mean, some of us, you know, it's like if you really want to watch something, you just get it on whatever you need to get it on. The idea that the world could be traveled in a day. Can you imagine how crazy that sounded? Remember around the world in 80 days? Like that was an amazing accomplishment. Today, it's like if it was like if you went around the world in eight days, clearly there was some form of technical problems in your travel. I mean, today we could travel to the moon almost in a day. The idea Now, here becomes the key point. God says, if you really want to focus on something to see, focus on Israel. And that becomes the one that drives me crazy. Because a hundred years ago, we tried to help God out. So you know what happened? Here, in our country here, we said, well, that's because the church is Israel. Oh, and all of a sudden, everything becomes clear. Well, that became, that seemed fine and dandy until, I don't know, Israel became Israel. Then all of a sudden, we had a problem. 
Because God said that Israel would be reborn again during the most tumultuous of times. And it's exactly what happened. The Holocaust was clearly some of the most tumultuous times in history. And Israel was born from it. Now you have the existence of a country that God promised would exist during the last times. Now what do you do with it? Well, you believe the scripture. And when God talks about the only thing that's left is a temple to be built. Which, by the way, we read that the Antichrist will get into a contract with Israel. Allowing that, if you will, allowing that, uh, that temple to be built. With a wall separating the profane and the holy. Interesting, by the way. Because when we read it in the book of Revelation, what we read is there's a seven year period of trial. But three and a half years at the three and a half year mark is the time where it just goes all out potty. Why is that key? Because some of you have been with me to the Temple Institute. The people who, by the way, have actually built every item for the temple. And the only thing left is permission to build. They have every piece of furniture, including, by the way, 75 pounds of pure gold. Well, so they say that was built into a menorah. It happens to be wrapped around brass, which somehow they technically call nothing. However, if I hit him in the head with brass, I guarantee you they would not think it was nothing. Anyways, but, but with that, they have every piece of furniture ready and they're waiting for permission to build. And if you ask them, how long will it take for you to build that temple? They're like, well, we can't be completely sure, but we're fairly confident about three and a half years. Three and a half years. Funny, that's exactly what Scripture says. Three and a half years it'll be built. He'll stand up to be declared the only thing worshipable. And all hell will break loose. That's what scripture says. I'm not making this up. And it gets wilder because in the midst of all of these things, we have to have, a, I don't know, a world tribune, which means a world court. Oh, yeah, we have that. We have to have a world police. Oh, yeah, we have that. That's called Interpol with the world court. We have to have some form of united European Union for which then will be a head over which. Oh, yeah, we have that, too. The only thing left, really, is for, I don't know, Russia has to kind of get in a union with Syria. Oh, yeah, that's happening. All the nations around Israel have to hate Israel. Oh, yeah, that's happening. And America has to become less important. Oh, yeah, that's happening. What's left? And he says, when you see all of these things, oh, yeah, it talks about worldwide pandemic epidemics of disease. Have you ever seen since the 1980s the attention given to worldwide disease? It started with AIDS. But think about in the last year. In the last couple of years, we've had Ebola. Remember that? Remember that scare? And now we have Zika. Sounds like it's like his kid sister or something showed up. Here's Ebola and his kid sister Zika. You know, and, it's, and, and now everyone's concerned about that. But it isn't just here. That stuff comes from Africa or it comes from where. And it's like all of a sudden we're concerned that the entire world will, is going to get something. God says it's exactly what you should expect. I realize if you take God literally when he speaks literally, you never have to change your mind. The question I'm asking you is, are you ready? Because when the Lord does come, I don't think you get a lot of choice in the matter and you get a, and a second option. That's the key here. Remember Lot's wife? I think that was a very stark warning. And the reason I'm saying this, because we'll develop the rest of this very little, because this is the key, is that Jesus is sending people. And he's going, I'm sending you not to the lost yet. I need you to get you to my people because the people need to know I'm coming. Because if you don't know that, what happens? You get fat and lazy well, this is what Jesus says. When Jesus speaks about this very issue, by the way, and this really does break my heart, because as I read this kind of stuff, will you tell me if this sounds like anything you might be familiar with that's called Christianity? Now, again, we're part of it. It isn't like it's us and them. But it says this in Luke twenty-one thirty-four. It says, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day will, will come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as the, a snare to those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch therefore and pray. That you would be counted. Pray always, by the way. That you would be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. And to stand before the Son of Man. Who do you think is going to be worthy to stand before the Lord when he comes? 
Do you think it's just someone who claims to be his? Jesus said about the sons of the kingdom being cast into outer darkness. No, not the true sons of the kingdom, but those who were calling themselves that, yes. There were an awful lot of people who were completely confident they were safe that weren't. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, listen, my master is delayed in coming. What does he do? He begins to beat, and the idea of it is rail or rag on his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. That master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking at an hour when he's not aware of. They will cut him in two. Well, cut him in two. Why not just like stab him or like knock his head off? Why cut him in two? Because it's exactly what the problem was inside. Is the guy was two parts. The part that played church and the part that lived the rest of the life with nothing really to do about Jesus other than a get out of hell free card life insurance, if you will. It says, you know, appoint his portion with the hypocrites, which I remind you was just actors. And that doesn't mean if you're an actor, God's sending you to hell. The acting about Jesus. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I read this and I've read this so many times that it kind of has lost its impact. But let me ask you, if I could be honest, has there ever been anything you've experienced where you've ever gnashed your teeth? I mean, pain that severe emotional or physical, that has hurt so bad that when it was even slightly relieved, your jaw hurt and your teeth hurt from gnashing your teeth? Have you ever experienced the kind of pain where you've wailed? A few years ago, we had a horrible experience happen in our fellowship where a beautiful young lady was up in Ireland and an empty trailer swung off hitting the side of the car where she was killing her instantly. I remember that very well. I remember getting a call from Wananati and I'll never forget the sound I heard on the phone. It was wailing. It wasn't upset people. It wasn't angry people. It was people in anguish. They were being, in their souls, they were tortured. I think of that every time I think of Jesus hearing the wailing at Lazarus' tomb. And I remember what it was like that I would have to go and call Jenny and tell her. She's much more British than the Spanish heat that you get from Wananati. But I could still hear it. But it was very, very well fought back the grief and the pain of someone that you love so dearly leaving you so instantly. What would it be like for Jesus to say this to them? Do you think there's any part of him that gets satisfaction in saying this? And you're missing the whole point because we read in Ezekiel that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn to him and live. It says he desires no one to perish, but all to come to repentance. He desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I believe that. I don't have to help God out with the scripture. That's clear. The question I ask you is, well, let me ask you this way. If there's one person you could be absolutely sure they are over their head excited about Jesus coming, who is it? There's one person I'm sure more than anyone is excited about Jesus coming. You know who that is? Jesus. That's who. Jesus is excited about him coming. When the way that Jesus says that I go prepare a place for you, and then when I'm done, when I will come down and receive you to myself, do you hear the excitement when Jesus speaks of this? 
when it says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the Lord himself will descend with a loud command and a voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and after that we who are alive and still remain will be caught up together with the Lord in the air to meet him in the air and be forever with him. And then he says, therefore, encourage each other with these words. Do those words encourage you? Is there a part of you goes, you don't realize the wedding could happen today. It wasn't like you sent out invitations. In the Middle East, what you did is you just knew when that guy was done with his house, if he was excited about being with you, he was coming to get you. He was going to pick you up, put you in his litter. That's just the limo of the day carried on shoulders so that the whole world could see, this is my girl. And the elders of the town would come first and they would rise first to show the way, to say, we approve of this wedding. And then they would come and he would say, hey, everybody, this is my bride. I'm going to spend the rest of my life with you. And then, and understand, the bride knew that at any moment that could happen. Man, to live like that. Because see, what Jesus is saying to these guys, beloved, is he's saying, listen, my church is asleep and they're drunk and they're beating each other. And I look at what church is and we went to this, we went to visit this thing and I'm not trying to bag on somebody else. But listen, it was like, we're going to go and tell the rest of the world. And then you walk in and the first thing there was, was just open bar. And I don't know about you, but I know some of you have been delivered from alcohol and from drugs. And the last thing we want to do is put that temptation in front of you. I would rather, you know, the freedom of Christ. If that's boring, then we'll be boring and biblically, but I would rather have that and know you are safe here and understand that, that here that, that when I look at this and I realize there are people that are bagging, it's like Christians picking on Christians and talking about how horrible and, and you should just go to hell and I hate you and all of that's happening and Jesus is like this is what happens when we, we wouldn't do this if we were focused on him coming but if we were the, the reason for him coming and getting excited is not that we get to bail on bills here and on the cold and the rain and people that have gotten mental, but rather that we could get excited about him because the reason he's excited to get us isn't because he can't wait to get out of heaven for a minute. It's because he can't wait to be with us the way he wants to. And it says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we'll be all, we will all be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, it says that we will be like him and, be, and know, even as we are known, because we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. Oh, beloved, please hear me. As Jesus sends them out, I would love for him to send us out today. Says, you know what? And it's like, how about this? I want to send you to each other. Just so you know, he could come today. You're right with that. You know, I know what that happens then. What happens in a week when I still say he, he could come today? You know what the Lord is allowing? Every day there's news that reminds me he could come today. He could come today. He could come today. And are you ready for that? Because I want to be ready. <clears throat> in 2 Peter 3, it said it was the last days, 3 3. By 1 John 2, he said it was the last hour. But by James 5 9, it says he's standing at the door. I don't know how much closer you have to be than that. And Jesus, I want to send you guys out and I want you to tell my people that I'm coming. Because as I'm coming, I want them excited about my coming. I don't want them to go, oh, no. When I used to teach guitar lessons down in El Toro in California, I remember there was two gals that were my students and they, we met together, the three of us. So I didn't want to meet with a girl individually, so... Kind of couple them up. And there, I remember the girls, they were both single, and they said their biggest fear, because they were both Christians, their biggest fear was that the Lord would return before they ever got married. They're like, they've saved themselves for their husband. They're like, oh no. I'm like, I guarantee you, when the Lord comes, it'll be the last thing on your mind. Okay, let's close this up. Verse 8 says, Heal the sick, cleanse the leper. Raise the dead, cast out demons. Because you've been given freely, why don't you give freely as well? Listen, first I've got a specific message. I'm sorry, I've got a specific audience. Then I've got a specific message. And I've got a specific way to back up what you say. And here it is in the simplest sense. Heal, cleanse, give life, and set free. In the simplest sense, meet their need. But did you notice that was third, the third thing, not the first? I feel like there are those that want to share verbally but don't do anything. And then those that want to do something but don't share. Well, if that's two different churches, they need to merge and pair those people up. Let the talker go with the giver. 
But what Jesus says is, I sent you to preach. Now that you know you're there to preach, well, then meet their need. Now, hey, look at that need may be something totally supernatural. They're, they need to be healed. But understand, these are never the end of it. This isn't the destination. This is just the route to giving your life to Jesus. Jesus doesn't heal someone because what he wants is for you to have two legs. Jesus heals you if he does heal you because what he wants is for you to be completely his. And he knows what that will take. For some of us, having cancer is a greater miracle than being delivered from it. I know that sounds horrible. But if the most important thing to him is your relationship with him, that's what he wants more than anything. Well, I want you to freely give. Because I'm giving to you freely. Don't be so freaked out about it. Trust me to back you up. You bring the message, and I'll bring the backup. Verse 9, provide neither gold, silver, copper. By the way, did you notice he devalues? He goes from gold. Don't bring gold. You're like, well, I won't bring gold. I'll just bring silver. And he's like, don't bring silver. Well, then I'll bring a lot of copper. Don't even bring copper. Don't even bring your pennies. Well, that's weird. Don't you think I'd want to come prepared? He's like, you know what? Listen, listen, listen. Let me meet your needs. I remind you, you're being sent to God's people here. You're not being sent to the lost. Let me meet your needs. You know the great part about it? He says, often the way I'm going to meet your needs is through other people. That's one of the greatest blessings when you get to be a blessing by meeting someone else's need because they're serving the Lord. The scriptures make clear, by the way, in 1 Corinthians, that the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from it. Man, when there's somebody and all they want to do is preach the gospel... Unless you're putting them in a place where all they're going to do is preach the gospel until they get fired, which may be a day these days. 1 Corinthians 9.14. It's like get them in a place where there's people and then sponsor that guy so we can preach the gospel to those who will listen. That's what it's about. See, ministry is not about finding things to do. Ministry is that there's a, there's a burden on your heart and you just want to do stuff so much that freeing up your time only gives you more time to do what you already love to do. When you see people and they're like, I feel like I'm called to ministry, but they have to keep inventing things to do. It sounds to me like they kind of should be doing something else and maybe this on the side. But when you find those people that are burdened with a passion and all they really want to do is just, is just get Jesus to people, man, then they need to be free to do that. It's part of what we do as a church. So he's looking. Let me take care of you. So stop worrying about you because if you spend all your time protecting you, you won't actually serve the people like you're supposed to. And I'll often use people to do that. And here's the last thing, and then we'll bring this to prayer. So when you go into a city, a town that you enter, by the way, again, don't bring two of anything other than, you know, two sandals, but not two pairs. You know, unless you have one leg. Anyway, but, and it says, for whatever city or town you enter, inquire in it who's worthy and go in and out. He goes, don't go house hopping, because that looks suspicious. When you get into a town, stay in the same place, at least as long as you're going to be there. He goes, well, what if they won't receive you or hear your words? Verse 14. Well, depart from that house or city. Shake the dust off your feet. And I tell you, I want to warn you, it'll be actually, I'll actually have a more favorable view of Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, if you read the book of Genesis, you realize there's no real favorable view of that. It'd be better for them because at least most of what they did was in ignorance than sinning in clear knowledge, by the way, which we can look at Hebrews 10, 4, uh, 10 26 for that. But hear me on this. This is how this ends, this particular portion, because then he'll talk about persecution. When we get back from Sardinia, that's what we get to talk to you about, is getting hammered for your faith. Again, we'll bring up stories and all kinds of things. Please hear me in this. When a Jewish person went into a Gentile community, and he wanted to come back into the land of Israel, he would try to kick off all the dust because he didn't want any of that coming with him. Like, could you imagine if you did that? I mean, you walk into some places. I walk into grocery stores now, and some of the music is so insulting to my Savior that it's like I want to rinse that off of me when I walk out, you know? I want to kind of take that little spray that they do by the lettuce and kind of hose off my soul and take it up there until it ruins the speaker. Anyway, but, but I realize the idea of that. And then I look and I watch. He goes, you know what's going to take you down here? So someone says a curt comment. Someone gives you a cross look. Because they really don't want to hear what you have to say. Because they really don't want to receive this life-giving message. I mean, they're dying, and you have the cure, and they don't want it. And you want it for them more than they want it. It hurts, because that's most of my life, that's what I'm looking at now. Are people that I'm like, I want you to say yes, because you don't even know how you could be healed if you said yes. 
And I want it more clearly than you do. He goes, but what happens if they don't? How many of you lay awake at night because somebody said something stupid? And you know, sometimes you're innocent. I mean, you've really not deserved their statement. Sometimes you're just representing Jesus. And as you're repping, they have a problem with Jesus. So they have a problem with you. Jesus will make that clear the next time. It's like if they hate him and they love you, there's probably something wrong. You're really not going to do it better than him. You can't do God better than God. Because you know what you need to do? You need to get it off of you. You need to shake it off. Playing American football, I remember part of what happens is you get hit. You get hit hard. They really try to make it so you don't get up for a good purpose, especially if you're doing something okay. And it was such a classic statement. Shake it off. I'll let it shake it off because that was such a big deal. You shake it off and you get back in. Because if you don't shake it off, I mean, we're not just talking about kind of figuring out whether both legs still work and if your hips aren't broken. It's more than shaking off just the physical injury. It's shaking off the fear you could get from that moment of the next time you could get hit. Because there's a guy, I was a ball catcher. If you hear those feet, you'll never catch the ball. You'd be too afraid of getting hit. And I've learned this about American football a lot like rugby. If you don't run with the ball, you're no threat. And you can run into the try line if you want. It doesn't really matter. You're not going to score anything without the ball. And we do that with, with Christians. It's like we, we think that if I don't bring the gospel and I really don't bring Jesus, but I just do nice stuff, I'm scoring points. But you don't score points without the ball. And we're like writing things, oh, check out how awesome we are. But we really didn't do anything. But please hear me. I've watched some of the greatest people in ministry get taken down over things like this. Because somebody does something really stupid and they show themselves to be really just horribly human. And the person that Jesus needed to die for. But sometimes what happens is they declare war on you. And you're like, what did I do to deserve this? I mean, you have to take a stand for truth, and when you take a stand for truth, then you are definitely targeted. And it is unfair. But there's no unfairness that I'll ever be treated that could possibly compare to the unfairness of Jesus in his trial when he's totally innocent, but then treated like totally guilty, and then crucified as a totally guilty individual when totally innocent. There's no unfairness in my life that will ever possibly compare to that. But please hear me. Because you have a whole future of ministry in front of you. I don't want to have to say, that's what took you down? That was dust. Dust took you down. That's what took you down. Dust. That's all it is. You know what dust is, right? Dead flesh. It's basically the the memory of people, if you think about it. So imagine, here was a man, brilliant in Scripture, mighty in the Spirit, anointed and gifted in touching lives, transforming human beings, being used in such ways that clearly only God could get the power for. Heaven was impacted. Hell was ransacked. The world around was transformed because this crazy person was put on there. But watch them now. They were taken down by dust. Taken down by dust. You kind of look and you think, well, how much dust has to get on you before... Well, when dust gets on your shoes, because that's what he talks about here, what happens? It stops your walk. It makes your walk heavy. You know, if you've ever walked in mud and what happens after a while, and it's difficult to walk. And he goes, this is what happens. And you're like, but I can't seem to let it go. I mean, what they say, I mean, even though it's a total lie, I still hold on to it because, well, where do you think that's coming from? Who do you think is consistently trying to make you hurt over it? Do you think God is? Do you think somewhere in it that there's some great lesson to learn if you grieve more over the pain of, of seeing this? Well, we can't get compassionate that way. And there are people, beloved, that will always be people and there will always be dust to land on your shoes. But it's amazing because if Gina were to go and share Jesus with 25 people and 24 of them gave their life to him and they were transformed, but the last one got totally mental on her, that's probably the one she might remember tonight when she goes to sleep. And that's not because Gina's unique. That's because Gina's human like the rest of us. Do you realize Jesus tells them this before they go for good reason? So here it is as we bring this to prayer. Beloved, We're in the locker room, and you're about to take the field. 
And I want you to take the field to the people that call themselves him, his, Christians. I want you to go in there first. And what I want you to tell him is this. He's coming. My Jesus is coming. Get your heart ready. And there'll be those like, oh, you're so stupid. You're one of those people. And then they're going to give you titles, right? You know, well, you're obviously a millennialist and you're a pre-trib and they're doing all this stuff. It's like, you know what? Are you 100% confident that I'm wrong? Because if he comes right now, I want to just be like, yes. Yes. And the choices I would make my whole life living in that expectation, if this church got way excited about Jesus' coming, I think it would ignite us as Jesus sends these people. He goes, I want to tell you, I'm about to send you out of the, out of the locker room now to go take the field. And I want to warn you, you're going to get hit. Here's the good news. Really lame players don't get hit. People who are scoring points get hit. People who are making a difference get hit. Good players get targeted. Bad players bench. Good players, the other team has been watching film. That's not to freak out because my captain fights my battles for me. But I'm here to let you know, when you do get hit, come to me. Come to my wife and me and let us pray with you. But I want to warn you, for you and for me, what we're going to pray is, God, get this dust off them. Because I don't want to carry it anymore. How about you? I don't want us to be known for our dead flesh, our dust of people's past. I want to be known for what Jesus is doing ahead of us. And I want to pray that for us. So let me ask you, are you ready to kick off some dust with me and move forward? Or you can sit in that dust which, of course, is mourning. And sit in that dust until you become it, because sooner or later, that's what this body's going to be turned in anyways. But I would so love today for us to be out there and say, He's coming. Do you know that in your own heart? I do. And as I look at all of these scriptures that, made, that were crazy things, now people are saying, well, this clearly had to be written during the time. But you can't say that about the things that we're looking at now, can you? Have you accepted this gift of Jesus Christ? I remind you, we're all sinners. And Jesus Christ died for your sins, according to Scripture. It had been promised for over a thousand years. Have you said yes to him? He was buried, just like human beings are buried. And he rose again on the third day, just like Scripture promised for over a thousand years. To be not only the Savior, but the Lord of your life. Have you said yes to him? And he was seen by a lot of people. And if you say yes to him, you're going to watch him do crazy, crazy cool things in your life. But that's the choice you need to make. Have you said yes to him? If you had said yes to him, it's time to know he is raising up a church to touch the world. But first, it's his own. And he's coming. And the time is short. If he's at the door, I don't know how much time we have left. But if that time is now, I want to be ready. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. I thank you for the challenges you've set before us, Lord. And I know, Lord, I'm going to miss this church next week. But I'm so thankful for Daniel. And Lord, I, I, who knows? Maybe you'll come back before that and we'll just have church service with you. You can, you'll certainly do it better than I would. And Lord, I just pray that none of us would be taken. You tell us it comes like a thief in the night to those who aren't watching, but to the servant who's watching, you would actually make them, if you will, servant overall. Which tells me that there are going to be those who are going to, who are going to think they're going to make it in and they aren't. There are going to be those who, who may just make it, as we read, as of narrowly escaping the flames. And then there are those who will be honored. And, and then, Lord, I, I don't want to like live this lame goofy life, and then assume you're going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, when I haven't done any serving. I haven't been good or faithful. But you tell us that a good and faithful servant is one who is watchful. Who is watchful like a child who loves her father that can't wait for him to get home. Who looks out the door for the car to pull in. God, I want that. 
And though I won't see the card pulling, what I will see are these events you make clear throughout Scripture. These events that you say, these are just, if you will, headlights coming on the, on the street. We see that with the wars and the rumors of wars and the epidemics. We see that with the tribulation of times and with the economic crises we're finding. With the disimportance and the devaluing of America and with the uniting of the European Empire. With, with Russia getting in, into, uh, into contract, if you will, with Syria. And with, with Israel becoming a nation again. And with the world ganging up on them. Not that they're angels. But they are clearly in need of you. Just like we are. And I pray that you would defibrillate, grab those jumpers today and and just set our hearts and give us that pulse again for your coming. And today, Lord, I pray that we would be people that say, yes, Jesus, yes. And here in this room, if you've never said yes to Jesus, I want to give you a chance to say yes today. Not out of threat, but out of joy. Because Jesus doesn't come just to inflict punishment on the world. He comes to receive his own to himself. And I want to be sure that you know that you're his. And to think that these things were written 2,000 years ago before there was anything that looked like money like the way we see it today. Before there was anything that could have been wireless. Before there was ever a possibility of seeing globally at one time. All of that's happened within the last 50 years. And so, God, I pray right now that you convict hearts as you promised by your Holy Spirit. And if there's anyone in this room who isn't sure if you've said yes to Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. Listen carefully. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. That's my prayer. Now I take claim to it. And here it is. God, just like you said, I'm a sinner. As all men are a sinner, I'm a sinner. But you've made clear you died for sinners like me to pay my price, that all my punishment could be inflicted upon you. And as you died and were buried, my guilt was buried with you. And just as Scripture promised, you rose again on the third day to give me new life, where you are the risen Lord. And I pray today that as I say yes to your lordship in my life, your payment for my guilt and your lordship over my new life, that you make me a person excited about your return and you get me hungry to see you face to face. So here I am, I'm yours. I surrender to you now. In Jesus, in your name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. So Lord, you've heard our prayers today. And I pray today that as we prepare to take the field, Use us, Lord, I pray. Use us in magnificent ways to inspire your people to the excitement and the encouragement that comes at knowing you're coming. And your coming could be any moment. In Jesus' name. Amen.